Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy, and by Dr. Richard Buzza Kelly, our lecturer in theology here at Catholic Studies Academy. And as we get started today, I just want to remind all of our listeners, please help us out, uh, help us to uh, grow our online community and uh, help us to reach out to more people by sharing uh, sharing our content, uh, smashing the like button and anything else uh, that you're supposed to do with uh, social media. Uh, so we just want to invite you, please just uh, uh, help us out, share our content. And uh, if you're interested in formal classes, go check out all of our content, including uh, classes taught by Dr. Bruce Kelly and Dr. Smith in theology and philosophy over at catholicstudiesacademy.com. All right. So uh, today our topic is going to be crisis, or I don't know how do you how do you say the plural in crisis? Because we uh, we got a crises. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's we have a lot uh, we have a lot going on now. Um, and so today we want to we we just want to kind of look at the uh, uh, landscape um, uh, and uh, kind of just take stock of where we see things, uh, how we see things, what do we see as problematic, and. If we can, maybe even provide some uh, wisdom and insight into uh, navigating um, uh, the strange world that we now live in. You know, I'm always a big fan of those survival shows where they they, <laughs> they, they go out into some unknown mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, place that's full of death and despair. Uh, uh, I want to be the survivalist that goes out there and know and, and knows which plant to eat and which plant not to eat. So I want to uh, be the guy at the cool bunker. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Smith, maybe you can point us to some water and the, the, arid, the arid landscape of, uh, of lackless and lackluster philosophies that are out there. And, and Dr. Buzakelli, maybe you can point us to some, uh, uh, to some refreshing plant that, that we, that will provide us sustenance and the, and the theological chaos that we are trying to navigate here. Uh, so uh, let's get started, um, and we're just going to kind of just do a kind of a roundtable kind of uh, kind of a deal here. Uh, and so uh, let's begin with uh, Dr. Buzakelli. Uh, when you look at the world, when you look at uh, just the landscape that we're in, um, how do you go about diagnosing um, the problem or problems? Yeah, and the problem that one of the major problems that I find, this sounds like a cop out, but it's not, is that I don't even know where to begin because <laughs> it's um, there's so much wrong, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and, and all the problems are sort of interrelated, right? They all yeah. kind of feed into each other. But I think one of the problems, you know, that I see um, really at the root of it all it's maybe it's less of a symptom and more of a, of a cause, right. Um, is, is a, a lack of, a lack of an ability to kind of think rationally, right. It's a, an emotivism or something, a reactivism, right. So we, um, we have a society that is highly volatile and uh, this has been, this has become, I think it's flooded the entire Western world where you, you know, you just sort of, um, you just sort of say the wrong word, right? Or you, um, you know, you, you, you jump on the wrong side of the line 
and everything is electric. Everything is like the third mm-hmm. rail mm-hmm. and there's no rational discussion after that. So tribalism uh, has defined, has replaced debate, right? There's no actual yeah. debate. There's just, there's just fighting. That I think is one of the, one of the really deep um, causes until you solve that problem, you've got, you don't solve other problems. Um, but I think at a, at sort of a much larger scale, if I were to look at the metastasization of this, right, I would kind of say that um, there's a radical realignment happening in the world and there's a crisis in trust of institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at all levels, political, religious, it's, um, it's massive. With, with regards to this, uh, you know, not having the ability to think rationally, what do mm-hmm. you think, what do you think led to, to, do you think it was just like laziness or sloth that we just kind of found thinking to be hard? So we stopped or what do you think, what do you think actually led to, to kind of just this, this decline in rational thinking? Yeah, well, this is why I say it's hard to know where to begin. Because yeah. on the one hand, I see the lack of ability to think rationally and instead to just sort of react and take sides, right? Yeah. As a root cause of the problem. On the other hand, one could argue that it's a symptom, um, right? That it's a symptom of, that it's what results, right? From, from, um, a change in the way we approach education, um, mm. which goes back a very long way, right? Mm. Yeah. And and a need to sort of, um, what would I say? There's a tendency to, what does cause it? There's a tendency, I think, to want everyone to be, but to not really have their feelings scarred or something, right? And, um, and so we look at we look at achievement differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that means you know that we start we start um, we start saying that all opinions are um, are of equal merit, right? That kind of thing. Until finally there's no real basis for discerning one argument from another. And once that happens, there's no argument at yeah. all. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not really sure. I, I, I wonder what I don't know, maybe Dr. Smith is a better take on how that happens you know uh i was actually talking about this a little bit um uh <clears throat> this week uh, uh we started classes just last week um at um a local university where i do some teaching and um one of the things i was actually talking about the benefits of philosophy and studying philosophy which is you know kind of a stock thing you talk about at the beginning of introduction to philosophy class right and I actually, uh, you, you might be surprised at this, uh, Rich, but I actually used an idea from from Immanuel Kant uh, oh. to talk about this. Uh, one of the uh, interesting ideas that he talks about, which I, I think has some purchase, is the idea that uh, the concept that he coins of public reason, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that there is a kind of public discourse that we're all involved in to a greater or lesser degree. Yeah. Now the boundaries and the participants in that public discourse have radically expanded due to technology, right? Mm-hmm. 
also you might say the quality of participants has um, diversified greatly as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of everybody has a voice. In a way, that's cool. I kind of like that, to be perfectly honest. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of people who are out there just, you know, spouting. just spouting, throwing things out there without a lot of training, consideration, that sort of thing. And so one of the things I, you know, recommend, one of the things I recommended to the students was this idea that, we're all contributing to a conversation that helps to mold our society. Um, and that what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're contributing in a way that is uh, responsible, uh, effective, uh, useful, edifying, et cetera. Right. And yeah. that philosophy is good training to help you do that. So you're not throwing out there completely irrational ideas, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a way I would like to say, you know, what you're pointing to is kind of a, a, a I call it the decline of public reason, right? Yeah. Uh, right. I really like this funny, I think I think uh, Thomas just takes this straight from Aristotle, but there's a point where um, Thomas, yeah, because yeah, it's in, I'm pretty sure it's in his commentary on the politics, which is short, um, but also might be in his commentary on the ethics. He says that, um, that the words we say about justice makes society. Isn't that interesting kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, insight. I like that, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a real, that's a kind of an insight there. But, um, but I think it is the case that our public reason has declined. Uh, it's become hopelessly kind of confused. Right. And, um, you know, what you're talking about, the kind of the emotivism of it, the extreme, I mean, you use the, the, the metaphor third rail, just a minute ago, if you sort of think like with every rail is a third rail, how can there be a yeah. third rail? You know, like <laughs> right. you know what's, where to go, where to begin. It's just rails. <laughs> it's just rails. Ah, rails are all <laughs> untouchable now, which means you can't say anything. Almost, right, right. Except right. for maybe one kind of party line or something. It's more like it's actually a better analogy is like a minefield or, or one mm. of those, um, you know, one of those, uh, those layers in a spy show, you know, where there's a, there's a, there's a game. There's a game my kids play. There's a game my kids play, which is a perfect analogy, where uh, in the living room, they destroy our furniture by playing the game, the, lore, the floor is lava. Uh-huh. So you just, you you have to just jump on pieces of furniture and... It's a terrible uh, game. That's it, It's a horrible game, but I think it's, it's pretty much how I feel in society, where just mm-hmm. every everything is lava and you just you just don't want to touch anything. It'll mm-hmm. You'll get burned and yeah. It'll just be bad, you know. It's terrible. Um. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've we've talked before about um, you know my take on on um, on the uh, allegory of the cave with respect to the issue of public discourse. I mean, privately, we've we've talked about that. You may not remember what I my view on that, but I think that uh, one of Plato's points there, right, is that coming up out of the cave and seeing things as they are actually being able to, to see the truth um, as it really is. Right. Mm. Is one of the necessary conditions for participation in the polis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why the discussion is in the middle of the Republic, but sure. um, I don't know what your opinion about that is, but it seems to me relevant to this discussion. If there's sure. going to be a public discourse, there's yeah. got to be some, preparation to engage in it mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think you're right i think that's why you know i don't know i haven't come up with the, the proper archie to call it uh or the proper political term but you know he basically plato believes in the rule of the wise right uh-huh. I mean, that's what he advocates for in the 
republic. Now, as it turns out, he thinks there's not very many people who are wise, and therefore uh, there should the, the rulers will be few, uh, or maybe even one. But um, uh, but yeah, no, no. But I think the, the central idea is correct. Uh, Aristotle is going to, of course, going to expand on that and think that there's probably more people who have phronesis, right? A kind of you know practical wisdom, maybe not you know not a pure democracy in the way we think of it, of course, or maybe egalitarian democracy, but no, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, wisdom of some sort, you know, or to some degree uh, is um, requisite um, for participating in that conversation uh, well. Um, I also think, you know, so that, so why is that wisdom lacking, right? And here's the thing is, is I don't know that our leaders, you know, read the Republic anymore. Um, or think it's very relevant, right? So, or, or the Constitution, <laughs> or the Constitution, <laughs> of the United States of America, right? Uh, you know, so really, uh, in some ways, you know, you want to. I, I kind of this maybe isn't shocking, but I would want to say I think the decline in public reason has something to do with the decline of higher education um, yeah. and and models of education in general. I don't actually think that it's going to sound a little elitist, but. The truth is, I think that, you know, in most societies, there's a leading element, right? Whether that's formally codified by a legal system that reflects that, right, or not, mm-hmm. right? There's always going to be, you know, um, the kind of, you know, you're never going to get rid of the elite, right? I mean, like, in some sense, There's a right? leadership you, class. There's something. a leadership class. Exactly. Right, right. You know, and, <clears throat> you know, you, 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 you enact the revolution to overthrow all of authorities. And then the next day you start to build a new authority, right? Just that's just, right. just reality of the matter. Right. Um, Cause the leaders of the revolution are now sort of start telling you what to do. right? You know? <laughs> so um, I think there's going to be a leadership class. And so that's a political view of mine or a political philosophy view of mine. Right. Uh, and so why is it that the leadership class and it's the quality of it, uh, of their education has declined Right, because ostensibly many of them, not all of them, but many of them have the opportunity, right, to have a very high caliber uh, education, right? And I think in part it's because the content of the education has changed, right? And the expectation of what it means to be a leading educated person, right, um, has changed uh, a good bit, you know? So I would trace, you know, back to kind of a, one, a, a kind of a two things, one, one being the view that reason isn't ultimately, doesn't give you an ultimate unified approach to things, right? A co- coherent approach to things. Mm-hmm. Alistair McIntyre writes about this in his book on God and the university, which is, you know, the idea of the university is, of course, a profoundly Christian institution, uh, you know, developed in the med- medieval period. And, you know, the, the ultimate unity of the um institution is theology uh, and derive, you know, from the unity of all things that are God. But once you get rid of God, then you can kind of replace God or displace God maybe with other ways of trying to create a a telos for the university. But, you know, kind of what we've devolved into is being sophist, right? We're going to, you know, help you become wealthy and powerful. Um, That's what the university is there to do. Um, So, uh, I think that that would be one side of it. Um, and the other kind of version of that is the truncation of reason to science, which leaves us bereft of rationality in all other matters. 
Yeah, right, right, right. Do, does it, do both those critiques make sense? No, I, I yeah, I, I agree, I agree. And so there, you know, one of the other uh, symptoms of it, right, is that the um, the universe there is no university actually, mm-hmm. right? right? It's just um, silos mm-hmm. of um, silos of independent fields right? mm-hmm. that you know they're sort of loosely connected under some grand umbrella, sure. but they they don't really interact, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And then also that, you know, when you reduce re- rationality to um, um, to just uh, science, right, then you end up saying, well, everything else is just merely subjective, right? It's just a matter yeah. of feeling, right? And that's where your emotivism becomes triumphant, right? So as soon as we start talking politics, culture, art, beauty, uh, any of those sorts of things, right, friendship, then you know, it's out the door, like reason goes out the door and it's about yeah. pleasure and pain become preeminent. Right. So that right. So the person if, who, the, mm-hmm. the person who makes, who's first to um, person who's first to kind of lodge the complaint, right. Is mm-hmm. the person who sort of wins the, uh, wins the argument. Right. That's right. Yeah. It was really interesting. I was at a conference some, some years ago uh, at uh, Villanova and it was uh, interesting uh, the, the main theme of the conference was on mysticism, which isn't particularly my area. Uh, I was presenting on something else, but the, the keynote um, lectures were all on mysticism in the medieval period. And one of the authors, uh, one of the, 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 the keynote speaker, right, the, the main one, um, she had an interesting criticism of contemporary fascination with mysticism, which I thought was kind of interesting. And she said that she was afraid that a good bit of it had to do with the cult of what she called suffering. Uh, uh, in a kind of secularized form, right? That is that the only thing that is unquestionable, that cannot be critiqued, right? Is your own, is is your suffering, right? That we kind of put like human, like human suffering up on sort of this pedestal that wherever suffering is, that's the one thing we, we, we know that's bad, right? Uh-huh. Um, and, and so it's, it kind of has this disproportionate um role in our lives in terms of how we think about things right so it's enough to say like um well what you're proposing is causing me discomfort or trauma or anxiety to say that it's unethical it's evil for you to propose what you're saying yeah right and the major you know of course obviously the logical weakness to that position aside from the fact that it's not a logical position at all <laughs> it, right. it's, it's mere sentimentality right it, it, yeah but the, if you want to sort of like, um, you know, throw the critique into it, mm-hmm. you, you would note that sometimes um, if I, if I try to assume your suffering, that'll cause me suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, one of us is going to suffer in this, uh, in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we determine who it's going to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that's the thing I, I don't think there's any resolution to that from yeah. the purely subjectivist perspective that's right yeah i think you'd have to bring in sort of a broader critique uh a, a broader theory about um the dialectic of oppression at that point right and say well really rich your feelings of suffering don't count because you're part yeah, that's of right. the that's oppressor class right and yeah. so yeah you're suffering but that's just because you're evil yeah. Um, so you're suffering in this case. And a priori is irrelevant. We've already determined a priori that we know which of those, which is the oppressor and which is the oppressed. In that, sure. Yeah. In mm-hmm. that, uh, and you can't even question. Yeah. 
So again, that again that undermines right public reason, right? Right. If half of the side of the conversation uh, can't even um, you know get a seat at the table, then yeah, that's what uh, Cardinal Newman right he described as um, poisoning the well of discourse, and mm-hmm. it's regarded as it's always been regarded as a logical fallacy. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the and the, and the worst thing about it, if you care about the truth at all, and we'll just say ostensibly some people do, babe. Um, it deprives you of the opportunity to see if what you think is actually really true. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, like in the, in the sort of the dialectical push, push, you know, the debate, right. You know, it's, you know, a Socratic debate that's supposed to be a test, right. Where we can actually see, you know, whether or not uh, what we think is true is true. Right. Um, I know one of my, <laughs> I think I've told you all this before, but one of my experiences now having studied philosophy for a long time is, you know, having to, you know, sort of revise some of my views and attitudes. And one of those, you know, is I have this old ancient copy of the collected, or I don't know, it's not the, all the works, but like say an anthology of the works of John Stuart Mill uh-huh. that I have for my freshman year, first semester, right? And it's marked up. And I mean, there's some foul language in there. And I'm just like, I can't stand the guy, right? So like I'm writing all these like super negative things about John Stuart Mill, <laughs> like his, uh, uh, both his essay on liberty, um as well as his essay on uh uh utility or utilitarian utilitarianism but um but especially the one on on liberty well that, that's when i was like 18 or 19 right you know mm, several decades later <laughs> you know i kind of started to think well you know i still think john Stuart mill is fundamentally wrong but you know like I find myself more, you know, you know, sympathetic, uh, sympathetic, right, to a lot of his <laughs> uh, his concerns, uh, um, you know, um, than I did, you know, uh, those years ago. Um, so, you know, uh, that's one of the things he brings up, right? Is that, you know, he he, of course, he likes to use people like inquisitors or whatever. But anyways, you know, he's a 19th century English guy, so that's what they do. So, but like, you know, he he wants to say, like, you know if you're going to be a guardian of the truth, right. Uh-huh. Uh, such that you preclude debate over the truth. Then the first, you know, one of the first victims of that is the truth, right? Because you might just be holding to something that, you know, isn't true. <laughs> isn't true. Right. You know, and if you don't let anybody ever debate it and this, you know, saying this kind of hearing myself speak this way reminds me of the left, you know, kind of left center left pro- professors, that I was taught by, right? Uh, uh, like I was taught mostly by, you know, I wouldn't call them radically left, but you know, center left professors. My grandparents are probably that way. Uh, they were that way, um, you know, but, um, you know, they they believed in free debate and, you know, all this good academic freedom, you know, like. You that, know, that was a thing once. That was a thing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know? It's no longer a thing. Yeah. So what I find interesting about, um, what I find interesting about the problem that you're naming here right is um the kind of dogmatism of it is that we've shifted from a um a sort of like faith-centered um view of knowledge right Mm -hmm. to the post-enlightenment um reason-centered view of knowledge uh and by and i I'm not drawing the false dichotomy, right? I'm saying natural reason, right? Natural mm-hmm. reason centered. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, right, if, if I'm making the argument from uh, faith, I'm making the argument from revelation, 
Now you either grant revelation or you don't, right? I can't sure. really demonstrate that by natural reason. But if you grant revelation, then you have a basis for making the claim that there's a dogma that can't be questioned, right? It's you have a basis for saying it's beyond human reason um, to begin with. You're not going to reason yourself to it in the first place. Um, and maybe you just, you just don't understand it because it comes from God. But mm -hmm. trust me, we have to say this, right? Mm -hmm. There's a basis for that position. There's sure, no basis for that position yeah. uh, if our starting point is natural reason alone. Sure. And yeah, yeah. what I find bizarre is that we actually have become increasingly dogmatic about certain things um, that we're claiming, right? Not yeah. the product of divine revelation, but mm -hmm. are the product of, of natural reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there's an epistemological weakness there, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, we just, again, we don't study epistemology. Or, I mean, our, our leadership class doesn't really care about that, right? It, it's not, it's not trained in that way. Um, they don't, they're, they're, they're not nurtured to have a kind of character that's oriented towards thinking about epistemology and certainty and reason and truth and that kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, one of, uh, I was listening to a lecture uh, on the founding fathers of the United States of America and their view of education, right. And the role of education, um, especially for um, those who are going to be leaders in the, you know, the, the burgeoning Republic. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said it had to do with having that the the outcome needed to be something like this: a person who um, was wary, right, of his own certitude uh, and wary of his own possibilities for vice, but was inspired, nevertheless, to lead uh, by high ideals, right and inspired not to be a tyrant right mm -hmm. <laughs> right that that was the, the main like that the, the, you have the, the 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 sense of public service right as a high calling um not ambition right 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 uh now ambition is a good word yeah yeah which is interesting i mean like in the in the days of the founders it wasn't it was actually for a long time considered a vice, I think, pretty mm -hmm. universally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's, that's, um, yeah, I think all of that's a big part of why we're in such a bad situation. You know, uh, oh. you talk about the, the lack of uh, trust in the institutions. I think we don't trust them. <laughs> right yeah. because they're not they, trustworthy. They, they, they seem to, to not be too trustworthy. Right. Or if we're going to be really radical about our epistem, you know, this kind of like reduction of reason to mere sentiment, right? Then, you know, it's just their sentiment against mine or their feelings against my feelings, right? And, you know, then all of a sudden we want to jump in and say, no, but I've got expertise here, right? Well, okay, you know, that's fine. But then, you know, how, where is that? What's that expertise grounded in? Right. Mm. Um, you know, and, and the problem, you know, uh, with a lot of that is we just don't have enough shared ethos, right. To back up 
claims of expertise, right? Yeah, we listen to doctors to some degree, right? Uh, we listen to scientists to some degree. Um, but in this sort of kind of overall situation, which we find ourselves that you described as emotivist, I think it's a good, good description. It doesn't have a lot of purchase, you know? Yeah, I, I, th think, I think, um, with, go on. I was going to say with this, the, you know, I like the way you described it, Dr. Buzzi Kelly with the, you know, this, this new kind of dogmatism, but, it, you know, but it also, you know, when you use that word, you know, it also makes me think of then, you know, by, by what authority, you know, so, so that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And this, in this new, you know, <clears throat> in this new post-Christian world where, you know, uh, uh, Christianity is becoming even more, uh, uh, there's public disdain for it even more, you know, who, who is the, you know, with the Catholic church, I can say the magisterium, there mm. is the authority, right? Mm. Sacred scripture, there is the authority with this new kind of dogmatism. Where do I look in the world and say, there's the authority? How, do, how does, how does somebody identify the, the, the authority from where this new kind of these new dogmas are coming from? So I, here's here's a, a, a stab at it, or a way at least works out, right? Yeah. Um, which is that, um, so I've been using this term, this phrase, public reason, right? So I kind of like the idea that there is such a thing as public reason. Um, but then, you know, uh, Kant, the, he talks about public reason uh, in one place, if I remember correctly, <clears throat> in his um, wonderful little text uh religion within the bounds of reason alone right in which he says wonderful things like you know jesus is a great example of christianity but strictly speaking he's not necessary uh but, you know anyways um the you know kant says um me right you know like people like kant um, they're the ones, right? Uh, you know, they're kind of they he even says, I think, as a report that public intellectuals um are to replace the priest, right? Yeah. Uh, because they have, and it is interesting, this goes along with this kind of general kind of movement among Germans. It was very especially appealing to younger Germans, younger than Kant, but um, you know, Kant was kind of kind of became sort of like a little bit of their like go-to guy on this, um, especially with his emphasis on autonomy. But there was a kind of, it, it melded with the German romantic movement where there was this idea of like, well, if I'm cultivated in a certain way, right? I read just the right books and I'm cultivated in the right way. And I learn and I throw off tradition. And I think for myself and I go to the right salons and have the right conversations. I know salon is French, but parallel in German. Um, and then I will become enlightened, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or there'll be a group of people who are enlightened. Um, and they're really the people that we should, should listen to. Yeah. I think they're, that's... Today they're journalists. <laughs> right. Journalists is, and scientists. I mean, yeah, right, right. Yeah. I think that's about right. Mm -hmm. um, but... <clears throat> but again, I think that's breaking down. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, what will replace it? So going back to the 
my original statement about what I think, where I think the crises lie, um, and the um, the general uh, you know collapse of trust in institutions. I mm. think that at the same time as there's a collapse in trust in institutions, there's also a tendency on the part of those in the institutions to um, hold on as tightly as they possibly can to their to their claims mm-hmm. right so this leads to um i think an increasing hostility between between the institutions and and those over whom the institutions tend to rule in sure. one way or another and again at all at all uh, in all areas of society yeah yeah I, I agree with that and it you know uh from a historical and political philosophical perspective Reminds one a great deal of, you know, the the optimates against the populi uh, in ancient Rome, right? That that's, uh-huh. you know, I mean, we get the word populist from, you know, the, you know, for the people. And interestingly, of course, in Rome, the the senators and the, the senator class and the equestrian class tended to be conservative, right? Uh, and the populi tended to not be so much, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's sort of changed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, post-enlightenment it kind of makes sense right because our new senator class is is made up of the enlightened it is interesting though it is interesting that you could imagine if you sort of imagine um you know sort of a law of entropy right okay uh and the mass of the population would um you know not united this is the false premise, I think, not united by any common, um, by any common body of knowledge or something, right? Mm-hmm. That they would all be, they would all tend to go their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they would tend to be um, innovators, right? They would tend to want to change things uh, all the mm-hmm. time, according to their whims. Um, and therefore the governing class, right, would, would tend to be conservative. Mm-hmm. But um but what's really strange in our current arrangement, now, first of all, I, I reject that, that first premise um, because I do think that the common people te- actually have a common body of, they, they do have common traditions that, that unite them, right? Um, sure. But the strange thing is now we've got, the, we've got the ruling class not being conservative, mm-hmm. This is the part that's a little harder to understand, I think. Um, I mean, you said it's because of, from the Enlightenment model, uh, it's not entirely clear, it's not intuitively obvious, I guess, mm-hmm. that this would suddenly switch the tables on the whole thing. Like, try, explain how that works. Yeah, well, I think two things. One, you certainly wouldn't be sudden, right? Um, uh, so, uh, but I do think, you know, when once you've sort of gotten the you know kind of moved in Kantian directions right oh. and then later in sort of Hegelian directions <clears throat> right well the the natural law sort of falls away right yeah um tradition or custom as a guidance falls away revelation as a form of guidance falls away um again gradually in bits and pieces you know that kind of thing but still sort of like in a trajectory uh and so you know, if to be enlightened is to think for yourself, right? Um, you know, I mean, you just look at the way, the, the, the shape of rhetoric 
before, like in the ancient medieval world, is innov- innovator is like a curse word. Yeah, right. Right. right? Um, now we think of innovator as, you know, the best. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking for yourself is, you know, kind of suspect, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, to an ancient Roman or a Greek or something like that. You know, um, you know uh, not thinking for yourself, right? So supposedly, right? At least for the enlightened, is is what's degraded. So um, I think that you sort of see the trajectory in that direction, right? Uh-huh. The more you're thinking for yourself, the more you're you're sort of a self determining, you know, sort of thing. At least that's uh, the ideal, right? Yes, so, that's the claim because uh, you, you can always criticize whether they really are. Yeah, right? whether they really actually whether that's even what they really want you to do. Not but you, I, yeah, I think, but them. I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> them being. But if, I, if I, I, I defy you to to pick up any <laughs> um, issue of say Smithsonian Magazine or some similar thing, and read through an issue without finding several times a phrase similar to or identical with. Uh, X person gleefully upends some, you know, sort of uh, mm-hmm. idea or tradition or something sure. like that, right? Mm-hmm. Reimagining, yes, blah, blah, blah. Yes, yes, yes. That, that's the kind of, you see that all the time in mm-hmm. the highbrow, um, in the highbrow literature. Sure. And that is the aspiration, right? To overturn everything. That's right. Yep. So, yep. Jason, uh, you, to, yeah. Yeah, not to go off on a big uh, Marxist rant there when you're talking about revolution and overthrowing everything, but like, what do you think? What do you think the role of um, atheism has in all this? And not just like you know overt atheism, but uh, what Benedict the Sixteenth called practical atheism. So even people that claim to believe in God, but essentially acted and lived their entire life as if there's no God uh, mm-hmm. as well. So do you do you think that's that underlies a lot of this or sure? Yeah, or I mean, I think that yeah. I think one of the things that's great about the you know I'm I'm gonna sound kind of biased here, but whatever. Uh, I think I can defend it. Uh, I the think podcast. That, that the <laughs> <laughs> I think the Enlightenment, uh, you know, historians of the Enlightenment have consistently not all not universally but consistently distinguish between what they call the moderate enlightenment and the radical enlightenment. Um, and usually the moderate enlightenment is the Anglo-American tradition, right? Uh, in which there is still a robust idea that God has to be part of it, in which you have figures of the Whig party, which is the liberal party in England, who is Edmund Burke, who's like the founder of modern conservatism, right? In, the, in its modern idiom, right? Um, and you find trenchant statements among the American founders about the necessity of religion for a republic, right? Uh-huh. Um, you don't find anything like that in Rousseau. You don't find anything like that in Diderot. You don't find anything like that in Kant, right? Like, I mean, it's it really is a different trajectory, I think. Um, whereas I think in the in the sort of Anglo-American Enlightenment, certainly there is a, you know a changing of the guard, right? You know, and certainly there is you know the kings are are <clears throat> the days of the kings are passing, right? Uh, and, uh, but again, you know, it's interesting that they didn't, they, they didn't get rid of it in England. Right. I mean, they, they could have put the King in a guillotine or guillotine. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the opportunity. Thankfully, James II just escaped and went into exile. Right. 
And after that, you know, it was the glorious revolution and the, and the monarch and you know, the, um, the uh, Prince of Orange, right? William accepted basically a kind of titular monarchy, right? Um, which shows you the conservatism of that kind of enlightenment, right? If that makes sense. Um, so I think, but that, that's just specifically on the issue of religion though and God, right? Um, you know, atheism is not an English or American thing in the enlightenment. There's deism, right, among the the most the kind of most edgy yeah. uh, of the yeah. ones, but but again, you know, the American founders don't act like that. They don't talk like that, right? I mean, you look at the the petitions that would go from the Continental Congress to all the churches, right, to pray for you know the 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 arm uh, the Continental Army, um, you know George Washington's uh, you know uh, prayers. That he, he wasn't a deist. Right. Uh, so in any event, you know, yeah, there may have been some deism around there. Maybe Ben Franklin was, but he's kind of an outlier, uh, I think, among the founding fathers. In that but even point. the deists, though, right, even the deists, they still believed that there was a God who designed the universe. That's right. There's a design mm-hmm. that the universe was um, the universe operated according to certain laws, including mm-hmm. in the moral arena. Mm-hmm. In a moral arena, right? right. So it was not any kind of free for all. It may not be mm-hmm. what I would consider ultimately a satisfactory theological account but it's not um it's not a complete free-for-all mm-hmm. yeah so i think theism plays a huge role uh, theism versus atheism right a huge role in it because with with the um with the demise of theism or religion in general right you get rid of one of the bedrock unifying elements of society right mm-hmm. uh, in addition to that you get rid of an authority over the state right uh, which is, you know, I think enormously important, right? Yeah, that's um, right. It's huge. Yeah. Yep. And so once that's, that's, you know, gone, I think you're, you're in a very vulnerable position to the point in which, you know, Hegel sort of capitalizes on all this, you know, in a, in a, you know, sort of twisting together a lot of different elements. I mean, he ultimately thinks that the, you know, that the, the, the German state under, uh, under Bismarck was the end of history, right? Like, it, it was rationality fully realized, right? Yeah. Uh, in the the uh-huh. Bismarck, you know, uh, in Bismarck's government, and, and in fact, the writing of the Phenomenology of Spirit was was like the the culminating announcement, right, of the end of history. So, what's really interesting is it's pretty cool. Uh, we have this uh, the, the phrase we use today, culture war, right? Actually, mm-hmm. comes from from that conf. period, yeah, the yeah. culture conf, right? Mm-hmm. Um. He was waging a cultural war, and the, and of course the Catholic Church was at the center of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a big part. So I don't know. Is that kind of what you were thinking, Jason, as far as atheism? And yeah, theism, yeah. Or well, do you have something else in mind? Yeah, no, that no, definitely, and and just you know how <clears throat> seeing how it plays a plays a. Um, I mean, if you're if you're a country that's founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and yet you've become a society that is at least practical atheist. Mm-hmm. something philosophically has got to change you know and, the, and the, but the one the one that i think that that probably has suffered a lot from from kind of just practical atheism as well is is just uh uh you know our view of the human person mm-hmm. right so so like you said you know at least the the founding fathers they saw a design of the universe like we wouldn't be and you know the human person being part of that universe as well like we the founding fathers would not be sitting here debating about uh, uh, gender theory or 
how many genders were there and things like that. No, it was something that was simply recognized in nature. Mm. But I think, you know, over the course of, you know, time, if you, if you live your, you know, if you're, you know, the, it seems that a natural effect of atheism then is, you know, uh, you stop seeing the person as the Imago Dei. You stop seeing the person as well, yeah, having, no a, having, mm. yeah, having a design <laughs> that is uh, anything but self-created. Yeah. So, so, and I think you also have to kind of come up with a way of describing natural rights or rights, right? At least in the American setup, right? It doesn't require an endowment by the creator. Yeah, right. right. Um, you know, whereas that's very front and center, right, in the American form of kind of classical liberalism or, you know, moderate enlightenment. Um, you know, it, it comes into there, there's this new sort of basis, right, which seems to be something like autonomy, right, um, um, or, or some something similar to that, right, or some sort of radical egalitarianism. Right, but but even then, like the 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 thing that just again this kind of goes back to what we were saying in the beginning is that we don't have the ability to think rationally is mm-hmm. well if if everything about you as a human person is totally unique and um uh, we share <laughs> nothing because everything i everything i am is self-determined and everything you are is self-determined mm-hmm. then then why how can there be any sort of equality between us well i guess everything I guess- if, well, do we want to go in the Nietzsche direction on this? <laughs> well, I think I think you'd say something like, you know, well, we're alike only in this, that we are all self-determining. Yeah, good luck working things out that way, though. I mean, <laughs> right? This is where, you know, Nietzsche's will to power comes in, right? Sure. It seems yeah. to me, somebody just wins. I, I assert I assert mm-hmm. my interests over yours. Yeah, there's no, there's no logical argument against that. Right. You know, like, yeah, like against what you're saying. Uh, I mean, you're right, Rich. Like, I mean, that critique is correct. Right. There's there's no like one side to say, hey, you know what? I'm actually an Ubermensch. And <laughs> I'm my self-determination includes determining stuff about you. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Like, well, no, we're all the same. So what? Uh, you know, yeah, we're all the science. We're all self-determining. We should, and since we're all this, say, here's the thing: is there's this, there's this last vestige, right, of an implicit appeal to you should treat like things as like and unlike things as unlike, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is <laughs> since we're all self-determining, we should all treat each other equally and like as self-determining things, right? Yeah. But that's that 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 last little principle there is not something you've determined. Right. You know, it's something uh-huh. that's it's a it's a hidden premise underneath. Right. There. Right. You right. don't want to bring it to the fore because that brings metaphysics back into view uh-huh. and, and more austere <laughs> accounts of justice. But, you know, since I'm self-determining, you're self-determining, we should both just allow each other to proceed with our self-determining us character, whatever you call it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> interesting. Deveri- de- interesting derivation of an odd from That's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, ultimately, then you're kind of appealing <clears throat> to like a scrap, right, of the natural law, uh-huh. you know, um, which uh, there's a there's a book I've been interested in reading. Uh, um, it's a it's a it's a Protestant guy. He's an apologist, uh, but he, it's really an apolo- like an apologetics vis-a-vis secularism and atheism. But the title of it, and I've heard him talk about it is uh, Stealing from God mm-hmm. and uh, which is a very clever title. Right. Uh, and you know, he, 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 his basic thesis is that 
secular folks and atheists are all the time really just stealing part of the theistic or Christian worldview in order to kind of prop up like the, the kind of the loose ends, right. Of their, um, their worldview that doesn't actually all hang together. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was interesting. Like rationality. Like rationality. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Any, uh, uh, any, fi- any final thoughts, maybe some, uh, maybe some final, uh, Final few minutes on, you know, give us some hope. Uh, um, you've given us some good, uh, a, I think, a good prognosis or a good diagnosis. Uh, maybe sh- uh, point us where to go from here. What do you think? How can we? Uh, uh, how do we survive in this in this uh, arid landscape of uh, of today? Well, I want to jump in there with two things. I'll let you finish, Rich. Uh, one is, uh, despite all of this, uh, I tend to have some. Um, um, uh, some optimism uh, about the reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been a strong reaction to institutional corruption, to the decline of public reason, uh, to, um, you know, I mean, it, it, the, the problem with being scientific is that scientism doesn't give you enough to live a life, right? It just, yeah. you know, like it, it, you're it asking science- too much of your life. Yeah, you're, you're asking science to do things it can't. And that's why I like all these debates about vaccines and everything, leaving aside whether you should get vaccinated or not. You just can't decide the argument just on the basis of science, right? Like you, there are other issues that have to be considered, like your philosophy of the human person, like yeah. your views on ethics, right? All those sorts of things, right? So there's an enormous pushback, I think, uh, on a lot of this, on political correctness, on the more kind of hard edge sides of the kind of, you know, neo-Marxism. So I'm, I'm encouraged to see all of those things, right? Um, it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to have a lot of impact at the institutional level, but an encouraging thing is that I think people don't feel as beholden to the institutional level of society anymore, right? And so not to be a rabble rouser, but I, I do kind of think like, it's just like, this is in some ways an unfortunate shakeup. You can't really have a, an effective society in which there's a profound skepticism in the institutions of it, right? That, yeah. that, that just doesn't work well. At the same time, maybe this is one of those strange little periods where th- this is kind of what has to be the case until you know society kind of figures out some way forward, right? Uh, my... More, my other uh, positive response is more practical, which is that, you know, the way to respond to this is to do what's under your control, right? Focus on that, right? You know, educate yourself uh, as much as you possibly can, expose yourself to good sources, uh, interact with people who are logical, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, our Lord says not to throw your pearls before swine, you know, don't spend all your time arguing with people on Facebook. There's no point, <laughs> right? You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, take care of educating your kids. Um, you know, those sorts of practical things, I think, are going to arm you, equip you to do well. Also will help preserve your sanity um, and, you know, give you the opportunity to collaborate in creative and constructive ways with other people who 
are are not going down the this 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 trail. So that's what I would say, sort of a, uh, from a, a practical point. Do the thing that you can. So I'm going to sound kind of uh, like a hippie here, um, you know, like uh, think globally but act locally, right? Uh, I actually think that's not a bad that's not a bad tactic, right? Uh, for um, res- responding to this. Yeah, I think I, I tend to agree, and um, and I would say actually this tendency toward living your life at a more local and interpersonal level, right, mm-hmm. um, is actually how the solution will um, will be found. I think, right, because mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that's the that's where that alternative to the current structures will will um, will develop. Mm-hmm. Um, now that being said, I think that you know the, if we could characterize the nature of the struggle and maybe give some perspective on how how we can view it as a hopeful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Is maybe to cast it like this, right? Let's say that it's it's sort of like a parent whose child has has reached adulthood, and um, the parent the parent won't accept that fact and struggles to keep the child sort of. Mm-hmm. um under his control and he can't ultimately he can't hold on to that situation right. um it's 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 untenable right um and sooner or later when when the um you know when you get to that point where the the authority simply goes unaccepted then um the power is completely lost right 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 and a new state of affairs ensues that i think is kind of the trajectory that we're on on a grand sort of uh, global sociological level. Mm-hmm. That's the impression I get. Yeah, that's uh, fair. And, I, and I think the way to that, the way to, to realizing that is it is that uh, living life on a more, instead of, instead of sort of um, turning toward, you know, to too much of a global perspective, you're, you're ceding everything to the authorities, right? You're yeah. ceding everything mm-hmm. to to the established uh, institutions, the right. very thing that you're having such a huge problem with at the moment. Right, 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 right. right. And so the, the, that withdrawal, right, that withdrawal is itself going to facilitate um, the change that's required. Yep, that sounds great. Yeah, just a uh, last little note here, following up this, obviously, you know, Rod Dreher has talked about this and has been an adoption, which is a cause of much debate and fun. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's inter- like, re- regardless of how much, you know, you agree or disagree with him, I think the topic he raised is really helpful. Uh, and, and then even before him at the end of after virtue by Alistair McIntyre, right. Um, and this is right before Alistair McIntyre came back to being a Catholic, uh, you know, he wrote about the idea that because of he, he, because of the problems with emotivism and also something else he calls incommensibility that, at the end, he's like, look, we're basically in a situation where we're, we're kind of in a, uh, I think you used the term entropy before, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in a, 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 a uh, cultural entropy, right, is what we're experiencing. And that we'll, we'll, we'll begin to pick up when we find, I think he says, another, but probably a very different St. Benedict. Right, uh-huh. uh, which I think is a, a interesting. That's where Roger kind of picks that up from. Right, uh, is McIntyre saying, you know, and kind of going what you're saying is building new institutions, laying the groundwork, right, for building mm-hmm. new institutions.
All right, very good. The 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 quote that that came to mind just now when you were talking about that is uh, one that's in um, St. Louis de Montfort's um, True Devotion to Mary. He's got this beautiful section. I forget exactly uh, uh, what he's talking about, but he has this wonderful quote about you know uh, kind of your disposition to to life in kind of some crazy times. And he says, "Fight with one hand and build with another one." with the other one, you know, and I think that's a, you know, I, I think that's a, a, a good, uh, maybe a good little metaphor of, of, you know, don't just think that you have to, to sit here and, you know, fight on Facebook or fight on Twitter as if that mm. actually does anything. Um, but, you know, work at, work at creating something, work at building something up and, mm. you know, begins in the home and it begins, you know, um, uh, within your own, uh, interior life, you know? Sure. So excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Buzakelli, Dr. Smith for, uh, 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 coming on, give us some, giving us, uh, some, some guidance, uh, pointing us to some good directions and hopefully offering our listeners some wisdom to, uh, calmly, uh, get us through, uh, whatever, uh, whatever hard times we're going through, whatever hard times may come. Uh, and to uh, uh, give us the perseverance of the cross. Uh, So until next time, uh, we'll see everybody. Thank you for listening. God bless.